verses 21 to 38. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 to 38. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Now Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, or so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Jenai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Eslai, the son of Nagai, the son of Maath, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Joseph, the son of Jodah, the son of Joannan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Mirai, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Koseth, the son of Elmadam, the son of Er, the son of Joshua, the son of Eliza, the son of Joram, the son of Methat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Melia, the son of Mina, the son of Metatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Aminadab, the son of Ram, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nehor, the son of Serech, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Cainan, the son of Aphazeth, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. This is God's word. And Helen Chi gets the annual Bible Name Award. <laughs> well done, Helen. Uh, now, uh, I seldom allow my dyslexia to be exposed. It's only exposed when I forget to take off my password on my computer and then have to put it in in public. So I just need 25 minutes while I put in my password several times. As you know, we are walking through the book of Luke, and one might ask at this point, what kind of a church would require people to listen to a long list of Bible names in preparation for a message? We are the kind of people who believes that, as with everything, our worship ought to be informed by His Word. And His Word, this morning, contains a very long list of Jesus and all the descendants 
from Adam. I'm not sure if you know that this is a thing. People are curious. And if you're curious, I decide to platform this particular company because they're not in Singapore. This is from the UK. Leveraging the fact that people increasingly want to know, hey, you know, uh, wh where am I from actually? Where, where are my people from? How did they live? Well, what, what did they do in life? So this company right here, for the small sum of 500 pounds sterling, that's $885, will help you to know where your family has lived historically, what their living conditions were like. Did they fight in any wars? Did they get any medals? Did they leave an inheritance and to whom? I'm assuming if it was you, you would know. They also track their global migration. And the theme is, here it is, this is the exhortation, discover your roots, find out where you came from. Now myself personally, I've never been much interested in that. Because I've always assumed that the definition of the word immigration is things were not awesome where we used to be. And so I just assume, you know, my, my surname is actually French. I just assume that if everything was awesome for the French Buntons, they wouldn't have left France 600 years ago for their lives, running. I, I just assumed that when they arrived in Scotland, if things were so awesome for the Scottish Buntons, if they were lounging about in their Scottish castles, walking on the moor in lovely tours, my grandparents wouldn't have left Scotland 125 years on a boat for Canada. And you can assume if things were so awesome in Canada, okay, never mind about that one. <laughs> it's, a call, it's a calling. So, so I've never really been that interested because I just assume no news is because it probably wasn't good news. But my sister Mariana feels different because she's always wondered, why do I have black hair? When she holds her little niece on her lap, she notices they have a different hair color. Their eyes, unlike hers, are not brown. They are green or bluish green or gray. She's noticed that their skin is fair. And so three years ago, she called me and she said, she, by the way, lives in Georgia, the state of Georgia in America. She said, Ian, um, I didn't want to do this while mom and dad were alive because I didn't want them to feel bad. But I've always been curious. Where, where, where are my people? Where, 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 where do I come from? I, I know mom and dad have loved me well and I'm happy to be in this family. I'm, 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 just, I'm just curious. I, I bought the DNA kit. So as we continue in Luke to discover how to be radically dependent on God, Luke, as you know, is writing his friend, O most excellent Theophilus, and as you heard last week, as Pastor Eugene shared, he had specifically and intentionally placed the story in the historical context. He said, so, so this was the 15th year of the rule of Tiberius Caesar. 
Pontius Pilate, he was governor over Judea. Herod was the Rome-appointed leader over Galilee. His brother Philip ruled over Iotria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias ruled over Abilene. And then he also specifically and intentionally put the story in the religious context. He reminded Theophilus, this was during the time that Annas and Caiaphas were in charge of the religious council. And by the way, at the same time, there was this odd prophet named John wandering about in the desert, and people were flocking to them, and he was calling out people in unusual ways. First of all, he dared to call the religious council a family of snakes, not just snakes, poisonous snakes. And he was calling everybody else to repentance, to return to God through immersion in water, baptiza, baptism. This was unusual. But Luke specifically wanted his Gentile friend to know the expectation that was incubating in the hearts of the people who were waiting for the Messiah. And so you remember this from Luke 3 verses 15 and 16, as the people were in expectation, Theophilus, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, whether he might be the Christ. But John responded to them saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John and Matthew and Luke identified this John in different ways. Matthew specifically called him John the Baptist. Luke, remember, called him John, the son of Zechariah. So why was he called John the Baptist? He was called the John the Baptist for the same reason that we are called Grace the Baptist. It's because it was so odd. It, it, was, it was so weird. He didn't choose that name to be called John the Baptizer. But Jewish people found their home as God's people by their ethnic pedigree. They were not called to wash themselves of their profane Gentileness. They were already by their ethnic pedigree the people of God. In the same way, in the 16th century, people were Christians by their family pedigree. They came to Christ by way of birth. They were born into a European family who took them to the church. The priest baptized them with water, sprinkled them, gave them a name. They had church membership before they could even utter the name Daddy. So when in the 16th century, God's people began to have the Bible in their own language, realized, wait a minute, in the New Testament, people believed first, repented of their sins, then were baptized, they went down to the river and baptized themselves, and they were called those rebaptizers. It was so odd that John was calling people, Jewish people, to repent, to turn into God and so he then begins to help Theophilus pick at the roots of this man about whom he said, I'm unworthy of even untying his sandals. Jesus' ministry begins in this way. 
when all the people were being baptized and when Jesus had also been baptized. We need to stop here to ask ourselves, why was Jesus being baptized? Luke doesn't record this conversation, but Matthew does. Matthew records this trauma that John suddenly was experienced as he stood in the water and saw the man wading toward him, his cousin, Jesus, born of miracle birth, and so he immediately bursts out, I I can't baptize you, you should be baptizing me, because John knew that this was the righteous man who was righteous already, didn't need to repent, and yet Jesus said this unusual thing, let it be so for now as it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. You understand, friends, Theophilus needed to see this, that Jesus was just not avoiding all unrighteousness. He was fulfilling all righteousness. This was his first public experience, his first public announcement. Yes, The shepherds and the magi had seen him privately. He was presented to the Lord in the temple, and there some priests and prophets encountered him in the temple. But this was Jesus' first public appearance, and the first thing he modeled was, I will model obedience. To fulfill all righteousness, I will show his people what obedience looks like. And his last act was to model obedience. He did not have to be baptized. He did not have to die. He was a perfect righteous man. He willingly went to the cross to submit himself to the will of his father. This was his first act and his last obedience. And then we're told that this happened. As he's praying, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. That does not mean people looked and saw this pigeon coming down. It's a simile. It was not a bird. It was something, some body, some being. The heavens had cracked open And from the heavens, this bodily being came fluttering down and rested on Jesus. This, friends, is an important gospel moment. Because that word gospel, euangelion in Greek, or good news in classical Greece, in classical Roman, this word was used intentionally to announce the good news of a new ascendant king as the king was being coronated. He was anointed with oil. Something came down on his head and an announcement was made. Euangelion, good news. And then his credentials listed by relationship were announced throughout the land. Tiberius Nero, son of Augustus Caesar, new lord of the Roman Empire. At this very moment, this well-known practice was being matched in the Jordan River. 
as this spirit came fluttering down and this euangelion, this good news announcement from heaven, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Not just you are my son, but you are my beloved. The word comes from agape, my sacrificially loved son in whom I am well pleased. Not just son, royal son. This was his royal pedigree announced publicly. It's important for us to see this because then we will begin to understand why Luke orders his genealogy as he does. And so let's move to it. Jesus' roots exposed. Without the DNA test that my sister spent 700 US dollars for, Luke provides it for his friend Theophilus. And here's the first curious thing. Before he gets into the genealogy, he gives us this little Bible poke. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Why is this uncomfortable for us? Because Jesus, when he began his ministry, if he was applying for a role in a 21st century church, might could be a leader for YA, but he probably could not be an elder or a pastor because how to be so young? Friends, if we choose the Bible as our only source of authority, things from time to time can feel uncomfortable. So let me bless you for being the kind of church that is willing to feel the pain of occasional stretching of God's word. Let me also give you some help in understanding Jesus' genealogies. You notice it's plural. It's plural because there's more than one genealogy of Jesus in the New Testament. Now, actually, I intended to just skip this part because if I was preaching in Canada, people wouldn't notice. But you Google my illustrations and remind me if I'm a year off on them, so I just need to, by advice of our pastoral council, have decided we, we, we need to talk about it for a bit. So, so here's my comments about looking at genealogies, because it doesn't take a genius to notice the difference between Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy. There are some differences that you might feel are awkward. But here's my first counsel. First, let's be careful when viewing ancient data through modern lenses. Because in the modern world, with our language, we prefer precision, right? Mean what you say. Say what you mean. That, that's often what we hear people saying. English loves Precision. And so, for instance, when Daniel Bay says, Hey, I'm the son of Bay Suhi, that's not a metaphor. He means literally, Papa Bear is my dad. This is my, it's my dad. I'm his son. But when Matthew says that Jesus was the son of David, the son 
of Abraham, it doesn't mean that David was literally birthed by Abraham's wife and teleported into the palace in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that Jesus was birthed in David's palace and teleported into the first century. It means descendant. It matters because Luke seems to recognize this when in his genealogy, he specifically says, being the son as was supposed of Joseph, meaning that this is really Joseph's genealogy, not Jesus, because Jesus was planted in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. It also means, we can't tell this, but the only time the Greek word for son is used is right there. Every other time that Helen said son, that word was supplied by English translators because, well, we like precision. It just doesn't make sense. Really, the way it would have been read is being the son, as was supposed of Jonas, of Joseph, sorry, of Heli, of Matat, of Levi, of Melchi, of Janai, of Joseph, of Matthias, of Amos, meaning I'm giving you a list of descendants. So, so let me say this, this gentle word. If, if you are a creation scientist, if, you, if you've just embraced creation science and you've gone through all the generations and you've added them up and say, let's say a generation is 40 years and, and you've come to the conclusion, therefore, since I've looked at all these generations listed in the Bible, Humanity is about 6,000 years old. Let me say to you, please, please don't. Please, just don't do that. Neither Matthew nor Luke was saying, hey, look how precise we are. They're saying, notice this. Know what our point is. Therefore, if you know the audience, you will better understand the goal. For instance, this week, as you know, Sherry's back in Vancouver with her grandbabies. I'm here with my laksa. And this week, I had two different people in my family write me the same question. Two people, same question, but I gave a different answer depending on the person who asked. This morning, Sherry texted me. She said, how's it going? It's Sherry. So I responded according to the audience. I said, oh, it's going great. I've been making a lot of hospital visits. I've had some good meals with people. I'm preaching today. And I, I ate a vegetable last week. <laughs> My son Rob texted me on Friday. How's it going? And I said, fine. Different audience. So it's a different response. Sorry, we, Manchester United lost, so we had nothing to talk about. Matthew was a Jewish writer writing a Jewish audience. Luke was not Jewish, the only non Hebrew writer in the Bible, and he was writing one of those profane Gentiles who, by the way, was not yet convinced. Remember, that's why he called him 
oh, awesome, amazing Theophilus, but by the time he got to Acts, he had changed, so now he was Brother Theophilus. Matthew then had this Jewish audience. Luke was a Syrian who had a Gentile audience. Their goals were different. Because of his audience, Matthew was specifically giving a dynastic genealogy, following specifically the royal line. On the other hand, Luke was giving historical math, meaning he knew it was messy. It was messy for multiple reasons. First of all, he knew about the Leveret Law. I don't know if you've heard about the Leveret Law. The Leveret Law required a man to marry his dead brother's wife so that his name would continue and so that his brother's children would be cared for. So, so, so then that creates a, a question. Who was Joseph's father? Was it Jacob or was it Heli? We don't know. Luke said, Heli, that means, did Joseph's father die, and was he adopted then by his brothers, Heli? We don't know. It's just not clear. And because Luke has a different purpose, he doesn't care. He just doesn't care. Secondly, Luke knew how messy was the history of Israel. Unlike Western history, God's Word, the Bible, does not lionize its heroes. If you read the Old Testament, it is full of imperfect, terminally broken men. It is evidence not of man's faithfulness, but of God's perfect faithfulness. And so, even the man after God's own heart, David... When he was granted the throne and anointed with oil, when he finally conquered Israel's enemies and set up his palace in Jerusalem, he got busy in Jerusalem. Married lots of wives, had lots of concubines. So who in the world was his son of promise? Was it Solomon, like Matthew said, or Nathan? We don't know. But we know both of them were David's children. They were descendants. So it's important to know, then, why Matthew ended with the father of the Jewish nation. He ended there because he wanted to show that Jesus slash Joseph's line went all through the royal family right to the founder of their nation. Luke went much further than that because he wanted the Gentiles to know I can trace him all the way back beyond the father of the Jewish nation to the father of all humanity. They had different goals. And this matters because the desire, the message for Matthew is Jesus is your king. The message of Luke is Jesus is the Lord all nations. This set established the framework for the Bible's great theologian, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this. 
we all have an inheritance given to us by our first father, the first son of God, as Luke says. And we have that inheritance, which is this, sin. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Sin therefore came into the world through that one man, and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all of us sinned. It's in our genes. It's in our DNA. We have that broken bent towards sin that leads to death. But the good news in verse 14 is death reigned from Adam to Moses. Yes, it did. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transition, transgression of Adam, meaning Adam deliberately rebelled against God, deliberately chose to be the God who made him. Some people get lost by accident. Like the sheep wandering off, sees a clump of grass, starts chewing on it. It's not on purpose, they just get wandered off. And, and some people get lost by carelessness of God's people. That's a that's the story of the lost coin, right? Who, who loses a lost coin? If you've been careless, you lose it. Adam was God, creator God, the father's prodigal son. Adam, who was what? A type of the one, not a prodigal, but a beloved son who was to come, and so hope is given by that second Adam. And this is what Paul concludes in Romans chapter 5, verse 17. As you look at all of the genealogies, the line tracing back, you dig up Jesus' roots, and here you discover, for if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigning in the life through that one man, that beloved son, not the rebellious son, but the beloved son in whom the father is well pleased, who fulfilled all righteousness, who because of his sacrifice, adopts us into his family. We now share that DNA, not that we hung on the cross, but now that we can see what obedience looks like, we take up our crosses of obedience and follow him. We have that now because, because of Christ. Uh, my, my sister called me November, and she said, I, I found them. I said, you, you, you found your, I didn't know what to say, parents, I don't feel like they are her parents. I said, you, you, you found your biological mom? I, she said, yeah, it's, it's a perfect match and a, and a big disappointment because she called her biological mom who was a terrified 16-year-old Japanese immigrant in Vancouver, just a few years older than me. And what she heard from that older Japanese woman was this, I don't know what you're talking about. I deny everything. 
Then she started to weep and hung up. My sister began to cry on the phone. She said, I found my biological father too. He took my call. He said, so, 100% certain. I don't care. I got lots like you. Sometimes when we dig at the roots, we don't like what we see. Sometimes we find something that is painful, that's not that awesome. And I, and I said to her, but, but Mariana, I call her Meg, Meg, um, you had parents that loved you. That's the gospel. Our dad was like our spiritual dad. He had children and then went out looking for you. You've been adopted. You're my baby sister. You're my parents' pride and joy. You are their beloved. This is the good news that we all have. Because when we dig into our roots and find something that's not awesome, keep digging. Because by the grace of God, you have been adopted. And your roots go back far further than your ancestors who came to this country who lived in another previous to that, who struggled to find life, who were broken and debilitated by the sin of their first ancestor. We now trace our roots straight to the beloved Son of God in whom he is well pleased. He is the God of new beginnings. He is the God who looked at his creation, alienated and broken by sin, and then pressed reboot with a Savior, the Lord of nations. So, here's our reflection question. Is there, is there any part of your life right now that would benefit from a fresh start? A anything in your life that you wish you could say, oh God, let, let, me, let me have a reboot. And he is the God of grace and mercy and fresh starts. This is the hope the Apostle Paul said. For thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, but the last Adam became a life-giving spirit we have two parents, don't we? We have parents that gave us physical life, and we have a parent who has given us life eternal. Some of you know I was an art major. Seldom has any use. Except for me to revisit painful journeys. This painting, Starry Night, painted by a deeply troubled post-impressionist Dutch painter, Vincent van Gogh. 
This is the view from his window at three o'clock in the morning, in the middle of a dark night, in the middle of a deeply dark spiritual and emotional time for him. Because this is the view from his asylum. Institutionalized for emotional dysfunction. Institutionalized because his days were dark even when the sun was out. And somehow, in the middle of this man's darkness, he picked up the Gospel of Luke. And he read about the genealogy of Jesus. And this is what he wrote in his diary as he painted. He wrote, Jesus lived serenely as a greater artist than all other artists, despising marble and clay as well as color, working in living flesh. That is to say, this matchless artist made neither statues nor pictures nor books. He loudly proclaimed that he made living men immortal. Oh, my friend, I, I, I don't know about your roots or about your week, but I do know you are Christ's masterpiece. He is God's beloved, sacrificially loved son. He modeled obedience in his baptism, obedience in his death, so that in his death we might be the righteous beauty of God. I want to invite you to bow with me for just a moment. As you bow before the living God, the one whose hands would be upon you in a loving embrace. The one who would reshape you for his pleasure. Maybe you hear the words of that wilderness prophet calling out to you. Turn. Turn back. Repent. Come afresh to God. Maybe in your eyes, mind, you were able to see the living creator, Lord of nations, walk up to his cousin and said, I will model baptism, obedience, fulfilling all righteousness, I will reclaim God's people. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 47 through 49, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes this for us. The first man was from the earth, a man of the dust. The second man he was from heaven, as was the man of dust, 
so also are those who are of the dust. As is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. So here's good news. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. That means, friends, I look a bit like my father, Bob. But every day, I long to look more and more like Christ. Because as we live painfully in this middle space between our embrace of Him and our glory in heaven, he makes us, through pain, through difficulty, through challenges, more rightly fitted for heaven. Would you just now, in this quiet moment, say, Oh God, I long to be numbered among those who's not only been made out of the man of dust, but been remade in the image of the one fitted for heaven. His name is Jesus, not only King of the Jews, but the Lord of my nation, the Lord of this nation, the Lord of my heart. Would you reboot your heart fully embracing this Savior who came pursuing you. Father God, I thank you that through a troubled, broken preacher, your word can be heard. I pray now that your people would feel fully embraced by your affection and would on this day and on every day desire to turn afresh to you that we may live in this middle space with glorious, godly confidence that we have been son and daughters made by his righteousness, adopted into your family, embraced by your affection, beloved sons and daughters in whom you are well pleased. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.